This is episode one of the Family Captain Podcast with me, John Michael Clark. I looked around. The building he pointed to was riddled with bullet holes. The QRF Humvees had put over 150 rounds from a 50 caliber machine gun into it and many more smaller caliber rounds from their rifles and light machines. Now the Abrams tank had its huge main gun trained on the building, preparing to reduce it to rubble and kill everyone inside. And if that still didn't do the job, bombs from the sky would be next. But something didn't add up. We were extremely close to where one of the SEAL sniper teams was supposed to be. That sniper team had abandoned the location that they had originally planned to use and were in the process of relocating to a new building when all the shooting started. In the mayhem, they hadn't reported their exact location, but I knew it would be close to the point where I was standing, close to the building where the Marine Gunny had just pointed to. What I really, what really didn't add up was that these Iraqi soldiers and their U.S. advisors shouldn't have arrived here for another couple hours. No other friendly forces were to have entered this sector until we had properly deconflicted, determined the exact position of our SEAL sniper team, and passed that information to the other friendly units in the operation. But for some reason, there were dozens of Iraqi troops and their U.S. Army and Marine combat advisors in the area. It made no sense to me. Hold what you got, Gunny. I'm going to check it out, I said, motioning toward the building on which he had been working to coordinate the airstrike. He looked at me as if I were completely crazy. His Marines and a full platoon of Iraqi soldiers had been engaged in a vicious firefight with the enemy inside that house, and he couldn't dislodge them. Whoever they were, they had put up one hell of a fight. In the Gunny's mind, for us to even approach that place was pretty much suicidal. I nodded at my senior enlisted SEAL, who nodded back, and we moved across the street toward the enemy-infested house. Like most of the houses in Iraq, there was an eight-foot concrete wall around it. We approached the door of the compound, which was slightly open. With my M4 rifle at the ready, I kicked the door the rest of the way open, only to find I was staring at one of my SEAL platoon chiefs. He stared back at me, wide-eyed, in surprise. What happened? I asked him. Some mooge entered the compound. We shot one of them, and they attacked. Hardcore. They brought it. I remembered what the gunny had just told me. One of their Iraqi soldiers had been shot when he entered the compound. At that moment, it all became clear. In the chaos and confusion, somehow a rogue element of Iraqi soldiers had strayed outside the boundaries to which they had been confined and attempted to enter the building occupied by our SEAL sniper team. In the early morning darkness, our SEAL sniper element had seen the silhouette of a man armed with an AK-47 creep into their compound. While, while there were not supposed to be any friendlies in the vicinity, there were many enemy fighters known to be in the area. With that in mind, our SEALs had engaged the man with the AK-47, thinking they were under attack. Then all hell broke loose. When gunfire erupted from the house, the Iraqi soldiers outside the compound returned fire and pulled back behind the cover of the concrete walls across the street and in the surrounding buildings. They called in reinforcements, and U.S. Marines and Army troops responded with a vicious barrage of gunfire into the house they assumed was occupied by enemy fighters. Meanwhile, inside the house, our SEALs were pinned down and unable to clearly identify that it was friendlies shooting at them. All they could do was return fire as best they could and keep up the fight to prevent being overrun by what they thought were enemy fighters. The U.S. Marine Anglico team 
had come very close to directing airstrikes on the house our seals were holed up in. When the fifty caliber machine gun opened up on their position, our SEAL sniper element inside the building, thinking they were under heavy enemy attack, called in the heavy QRF, Abrams tanks, for support. That's when I arrived on the scene. Inside the compound, the SEAL chief stared back at me, somewhat confused. He no doubt wondered how I had just walked through the hellacious enemy attack to reach his building. It was a blue-on-blue, I said to him. Blue-on-blue is friendly fire, fratricide, the worst thing that could happen. To be killed or wounded by the enemy in battle was bad enough, but to be accidentally killed or wounded by friendly fire because someone had screwed up was the worst horrible fate. was the most horrible fate. It was also a reality. I had heard a story of the X-ray platoon from SEAL Team 1 in Vietnam. The squads split up on a night patrol in the jungle, lost their bearings, and when they bumped into each other again in the darkness, they mistook each other for enemy and opened up with gunfire. A ferocious firefight ensued, leaving one of their own dead and several wounded. That was the last X-ray platoon in the SEAL teams. Henceforth, the name was banished. It was a curse and a lesson. Friendly fire was completely unacceptable in the SEAL teams, and now it had just happened to us, to my SEAL task unit. And now they have some more interaction where he's telling him what had happened. Um, They're kind of you know, clarifying for everybody on both sides and de-escalating the situation. The SEAL chief, one of the best tactical leaders I'd ever known, quickly got the rest of his SEALs and other troopers down down to the front door. They looked more rattled than any human beings I'd ever seen. Having been on the receiving end of devastating fifty caliber machine guns round machine gun rounds punching through the walls around them, they had stared death in the face and did not think they would survive. But they quickly got it together, boarded the APC, and left for the nearby U.S. Ford operating base except the SEAL chief. Tough as nails and ready for more, he stayed with me unfazed by what had happened and ready for whatever came next. I made my way over to the Marine Anglico gunny. The building is clear, I told him. Roger that, sir, he replied, looking surprised as he quickly reported on the radio. Where's the captain? I asked, wanting to find the U.S. Army Company commander. Upstairs here, he replied, motioning toward the building we were in front of. So at this point, Jocko uh, goes and talks to the army commander, the guys outside who were shooting in, and explains to them what happened so everybody understands. Um, they continue the mission they had. Uh, they end up killing dozens more insurgents throughout the day. The rest of the mission uh, is a success. And now he, he goes on to say, but that didn't matter. I felt sick. One of my men was wounded. An Iraqi soldier was dead, and others were wounded. We did it to ourselves, and it happened under my command. When we completed the last mission of the day, I went to the Battalion Tactical Operations Center where I had my field computer set up to receive email from higher headquarters. I dreaded opening and answering the inevitable email inquiries about what had transpired. I wished that I had died out on the battlefield. I felt that I deserved it. My email inbox was full. Word had rapidly spread that we had had a blue on blue. I opened an email from my commanding officer, my CO, It went straight to the point. It read, in all caps, Shut down. Conduct no more operations. Investigating officer, commanding master chief, and I are en route. In typical fashion for a Navy mishap, the CO had appointed an investigating officer to determine the facts of what happened and who was responsible. Another email from one of my old bosses, stationed in another city in Iraq, but privy to what was happening in Ramadi, read simply, 
Heard you had a blue on blue. What the hell? All the good things I had done and the solid reputation I had worked hard to establish in my career as a SEAL were now meaningless. Despite the many successful combat operations I had led, I was now the commander of a unit that had committed the SEAL mortal sin. As the day passed, a day passed as I waited for the arrival of the investigating officer, RCO, and the command master chief, the senior enlisted SEAL, at the command. In the meantime, they directed me to prepare a brief detailing what had happened. I knew what this meant. They were looking for someone to blame, and most likely someone to relieve, which is the military euphemism for someone to fire. So this book is Extreme Ownership. It's written by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. They are retired, decorated Navy SEAL commanders. So we're reading a chapter written by Jocko. It's actually the first, it's the opening chapter to the book, the opening story to the opening chapter of the book where Jocko is walking through. So Jocko is the task unit commander. So as a task unit commander, he has two platoons under him. So roughly... Uh, two groups of 16 guys. So each, pl- uh, and I believe, if I remember correctly, I think Leif was one of the platoon com- commanders. And uh, and I forgot, I've forgotten their, their other guy's name who led the other platoon. But, um, so Jocko's a task unit commander and he's out, you know, overseeing operations. And, you know, he had rolled up on scene where there's some heavy activity. And as you can tell, he's, he's starting to, he started to piece it all together and go, wait a second. Why are y'all, who's in this building? Oh man, some hardcore dudes in there. And he's going, okay, where are our sniper unit? They were supposed to be in this area, but we don't have clarification on where in the world they are exactly. So he put two and two together and realized, oh no. And then of course he went inside and talked to his, he opens the door and sure enough, there's his guys. Um, or, you know, one of, not, not a full uh, platoon, but one of the parts of the platoon is inside this building. So as you can see, hopefully you understand the scope and the magnitude of the terrible, terrible thing that took place here. And he talks about the fog of war um, before this and just the chaos and and how easy these things can happen in in urban environments. But now he's got to prepare. He's got to prepare the the brief where everybody's going to come in. You know, everybody who is a part, uh, all of the SEALs anyway, who are part of this mission, his whole task unit. And of course, his bosses and investigators are coming in because this is a big deal. So for us civilians, it might just kind of seem like, man, war happens and, you know, there's no accountability when you get back to base. It's just kind of like it it went crazy out there and what's done is done. Um, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That is not the case at all. The rules of engagement are strict um, as a civilian. A lot of us consider them to be just crazy, ridiculous and um, there is a lot of accountability, and there are a lot of checks and balances in place to make sure tragedies like this don't happen. So here we go back to the book. Jocko is—he's um, got to put his report together because he's got to present. Basically, everybody's just going to be looking to him to to say what he's going to say and and see what he's going to do. Frustrated, angry, and disappointed that this had happened, I began gathering information. As we debriefed, it was obvious that there were some serious mistakes made by by many individuals, both during the planning phase and on the battlefield during execution. Plans were altered, but notifications weren't sent. The communication plan was ambiguous. The confusion about, and confusion about the specific timing of radio procedures contributed to critical failures. 
The Iraqi army had adjusted their plan, but had not told us. Timelines were pushed without clarification. Locations of friendly forces had not been reported. The list went on and on. Within Task Unit Bruiser, my own SEAL troop, similar mistakes had been made. The specific location of the sniper team in question had not been passed on to other units. Positive identification of the assumed enemy combatant, who turned out to be an Iraqi soldier, had been insufficient. A thorough SITREP, or situation report, had not been passed to me after the initial engagement took place. The list of mistakes was substantial. As directed, I put together a brief, which was a Microsoft PowerPoint presentation with timelines and, and depiction of the movements of friendly units on a map of the area. Then I assembled the list of everything that everyone had done wrong. It was a thorough explanation of what had happened. It outlined the critical failures that had turned the mission into a nightmare and cost the life of one Iraqi soldier, wounded several more, and, but for a true miracle, could have cost several of our SEALs their lives. But something was missing. There was some problem, some piece that I hadn't identified, and it made me feel like the truth wasn't coming out. Who was to blame? I reviewed my brief again and again, trying to figure out the missing piece, the single point of failure that had led to the incident. But there were so many factors, I couldn't figure it out, Finally, the CO, the CMC, and the investigating, investigating officer arrived at our base. They were going to drop their gear, grab some food at the chow hall, and then we would bring everyone together to debrief the event. I looked through my notes again, trying to place the blame. Then it hit me. Despite all the failures of individuals, units, leaders, and despite the myriad mistakes that had been made, there was only one person to blame for everything that had gone wrong on the operation. Me. I hadn't been with our sniper team when they engaged the Iraqi soldier. I hadn't been controlling the rogue element of Iraqis that entered the compound, but that didn't matter. As the SEAL task unit commander, the senior leader on the ground in charge of the mission, I was responsible for everything in task unit bruiser. I had to take complete ownership of what went wrong. That is what a leader does even if it means getting fired. So welcome, gentlemen, to the family leader, the family captain, the family leader. We're talking about leadership. To the family captain podcast, where that is what we're going to be talking about. Leadership for Christ-following men who want to build their family culture, gain the admiration of their wife and kids, learn to lead like Jesus, and a bunch of other things, oh, and have great sex lives with their wives. I don't think we're going to take too many uh, awesome sex nuggets out of this particular book and this particular session. But um, when it comes to family leadership, you know, my journey was one where I was frustrated for a long time and went on a journey. And one of the resources that I came across that really helped me and that the Holy Spirit really used to open my eyes to my calling as a husband, as a father, as a man, was this book, Extreme Ownership. And I teach that there are three legs to leadership, and leadership is much more than just these three things, but I think these can uh, serve as a, uh, a great 30,000-foot view of leadership. And those are compassion, responsibility, and authority. And this book was really a primary force in helping me to 
clarify and solidify my views of responsibility and what it looks like for a leader to take ultimate responsibility, to own the outcomes for what takes place. And um, we're going to continue to look at that here in a, a couple of examples in this book. But powerful book. Many of you are probably already familiar with it. And I am very much a Jocko Willing fan. I wanted to start the podcast, of course, with this book because it's had such a profound impact on me. And as important as compassion is and as important as authority is in leadership, I found that this was what was greatly lacking in me. And I think ever since the garden, it's been a temptation for us as men where Adam, our first father, failed to take responsibility. He was held accountable. He was held responsible. But it was his temptation to blame it on someone else. Lord, it's your fault. It's this woman that you gave me. So God's at fault. Eve's at fault. Adam's certainly not at fault. And uh, I've definitely had those temptations and have failed in that way many times. But this book has been a true blessing to help get practical and get specific. So although it's not a family leadership book, um, the Lord used a lot of lessons from a lot of different places and as I continued to meditate on these things and apply them to family leadership, I got a revelation and saw a lot of growth. So that is what we're going to work to do through this podcast. We're going to keep looking at different resources from here, from there, from all over the place. And we're going to extract and apply those things into the context of family leadership. So we're going to keep going now back to the book as we see where Jocko takes it from here. If anyone was to be blamed and fired for what happened, let it be me. A few minutes later, I walked into the platoon space where everyone was gathered to debrief. The silence was deafening. The CO sat in the front row. That's his commanding officer, his boss, right there up front, just staring at him, waiting for him to take it away. The CMC, who I forget what that was for, somebody else, maybe the investigative officer, uh, stood ominously in the back. The seal that had been wounded, fragged in the face by a fifty caliber round, was there, his face bandaged up. I stood before the group. Whose fault is this? I asked to a room full of teammates. After a few moments of silence, the SEAL who had mistakenly engaged the Iraqi soldier spoke up. It was my fault. I should have positively identified my target. No, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked the group again. It was my fault said the radio man from the sniper element. I should have passed our position sooner. Wrong, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked again. It was my fault, said another SEAL, who was a combat advisor with the Iraqi Army Clearance Team. I should have controlled the Iraqis and made sure they stayed in their sector. Negative, I said. You are not to blame. More of my SEALs were ready to explain what they had done wrong and how it had contributed to the failure. But I had heard enough. You know whose fault this is? You know who gets all the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the CO, the CMC, and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, There's only one person to blame for this. Me. I am the commander. I am responsible for the entire operation. As the senior man, I am responsible for every action that takes place on the battlefield. There is no one to blame but me. And I will tell you this right now. I will make sure that nothing like this ever happens to us again. It was a heavy burden to bear, 
but it was absolutely true. I was the leader. I was in charge, and I was responsible. Thus, I had to take ownership for everything that went wrong. Despite the tremendous blow to my reputation and to my ego, it was the right thing to do. The only thing to do. I apologized to the wounded seal, explaining that it was my fault that he was wounded and that we were all lucky he wasn't dead. We then proceeded to go through the entire operation, piece by piece, identifying everything that had happened and what we would do going forward to prevent it from happening again. Looking back, it is clear that despite what happened, the full ownership I took of the situation actually increased the trust my commanding officer and master chief had in me. If I had tried to pass the blame onto others, I suspect I would have been fired, deservedly so. The SEALs in the troop, who did not expect me to take the blame, respected the fact that I had taken full responsibility for everything that had happened. They knew that it was a dynamic situation caused by multiple, by a multitude of factors, but I owned them all. I owned them all. So my temptation when I first came across this story and when the Lord was opening my eyes to these things in the word to see that this is what it means to be a husband, that this is what it means to be the head of my wife, uh, to take ultimate responsibility and to mean that when, when things are going wrong, this is what it looks like. God comes into the garden and he calls for Adam. Adam, where are you? So in the same way, Jocko's getting his, his email from his CO, shut down operations. You know, the guy who shot the Iraqi soldier, he didn't get an email from, from Jocko's boss. Uh, he wasn't being pinned down and interrogated. It was Jocko. Jocko is the one at the head. Jocko is the captain of the ship. Jocko is the leader of Task Unit Bruiser. So if something happens in Task Unit Bruiser, Jocko didn't instantly zoom in on the person who did the thing. But instead, Jocko is the one who holds himself responsible. And he's the one who's accountable. But my temptation with this is to say, but wait a second, Jocko didn't do it. He didn't do it. Like, seriously, he, he didn't do it. So, you know, isn't that a little bit extreme? Well, that is the name of the book, Extreme Ownership. Uh, I think Jocko would probably agree that it could just be called ownership, but he wanted to make an emphatic point. But that's our temptation as men, is to fight against and to say, well, I didn't do it. I didn't commit the crime. I didn't do the thing. So while it, it's true a lot of times that we didn't do the thing, ultimately we're still responsible. And this is what we see in this situation. It's Jocko's responsibility to train his men better. In this case, he said there were multiple issues. There were multiple things that went wrong. And as he teaches throughout the book, it was his responsibility to make sure his men were better trained, to make sure they understood the consequences of not allowing the Iraqi troops to arrive at this destination before a particular time. He was he had made assumptions. You know, our our deflection of accountability, if we will follow it through to its log logical conclusion, we'll find that it doesn't usually make any sense. Well, it's not my fault. Okay, so what what happened here? Did your SEALs did they did your team want to kill uh an ally? Was that the goal? Well, no. 
Or are they stupid? Are they totally incompetent? And these are the options. You know, we've heard of the Lord, liar, lunatic thing when it comes to Christ. Well, I think Jesus was a good guy. Okay, well, he didn't leave you that option. You can call him God because he calls himself God. You can call him crazy because he calls himself God. Or you can call him a liar because he calls himself God. But you don't have some other option to say he was a nice guy. He didn't leave you that alternative. So in the same way, you know, if your team is, is doing terrible things, your options are you didn't lead well, you're a bad leader, or you failed in this particular case. It doesn't mean you're worthless and there's no redemption for you, but it means you're at fault and you're responsible. That's possibility one. All right, well, I reject that. Okay, so let's move on. Your team deliberately sabotaged the current situation that you're facing, or your wife deliberately sabotaged your marriage, or your kids are deliberately sabotaging your family culture. Well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's like malicious. Okay. Well, the other option is the team is incompetent. They're just, they really can't follow. They're that bad off. They're that stupid that they can't follow the instructions that have been laid out for them. Which is it? And an honest leader takes responsibility. The honest leader says, yeah, the team is not stupid. The team is not defective. And no, I also don't think the team is working against the overall mission. I don't think the team is out to deliberately sabotage and blow up and torpedo the thing that we're, that we're supposedly working towards here. So that leaves the uncomfortable option of, it's me. I need to level up in my leadership. And this is a terrifying thought when it first started to dawn on me, but thankfully the Lord rescued me quickly to also show me it was very freeing. What a relief when I realize that things are my fault because now I also see that things are within my control. That, And I mean that in a positive way, that if things are my fault, if I'm the cause of the problem, that means I can change to bring the solution. This is awesome news for my marriage. This is awesome news for my family culture. Man, things aren't going the way I want to. Okay, well, what's my temptation? What's our typical flaw, our typical fault? Well, it, it's old news. It goes back to the garden. It's Eve's fault. She she did it. She started it. She gave me the fruit and then I ate. But she was the one who started talking to a snake. She was the one who pulled Saul was staring at the fruit, saw that it was good, saw that it was good for food. She ate. She gave it to me. Then I ate. So let's just make sure we remember who did the bad thing first. That all of that's irrelevant. It's my responsibility to make sure a snake's not talking to my wife. And if a snake is talking to my wife, it's my responsibility to cut the head off the snake, right? And I, I hear it so often. I talk to so many guys. I can almost hear it even now. But I can't control her. She's going to do what she wants to do. And that is absolutely true. We can't control anybody else. Because if we take this, this teaching of extreme ownership and the, and the leader is held accountable, well, let's, look at the, let's continue to look at the garden. If we have perfect leadership, are those who we are responsible for leading, are they always going to follow us perfectly? Of course not, because Adam and Eve, did they have perfect leadership over them? Did Adam have, have a perfect boss? Did Adam have a perfect father? Of course he did. And Adam still failed and Adam still fell. So can there be exceptions to the rule? Yes, Melvin, there can be exceptions to the rule. but. That's not where we start. 
That's where a coward wants to begin. A coward wants to find his way out. Even that desire to find a path of escape, even that desire to say, well, my situation, it's just not true. Because first of all, you're not God. Your leadership isn't perfect. So I'm not saying that they're, they're, that it's not po- that it's not impossible to have people who want to sabotage something. I'm not saying that it's it's not uh, there's not a chance to have people on your team who are incompetent or incapable of doing certain things. These are possibilities, but they are highly unlikely. And that's not what the family captain is looking to do. A family captain is looking to to steer his ship. He's looking to lead. He's not looking to follow. He's not looking to place blame and find while someone else is at fault. Congratulations, Melvin. And in case you haven't figured yet, Melvin is my fictional character who shirks responsibility. Um, And I I love Melvin. You know, I think we all have temptations to be Melvin. But at the same time, um, I'm not mad at Melvin. I'm mad for Melvin. And at the same time, yeah, you'll hear me get mad at Melvin as well because Melvin's a coward. And uh, I hate cowardice within myself. So, uh, yeah, I cringe. I cringe when I see cowardice in anybody, uh, mostly within me. But anyway, so if you're wondering, who's Melvin? Is this the co-host we'll be introduced to in a moment? Uh, no, it's just me. So um, there's, there's no Melvin. Maybe someday we'll get, a, we'll get an actual Melvin. And if your name is Melvin, uh, I just, I'm sorry. And that is unfortunate. <laughs> I love you, bro. For real, for real. Man, now I lost track of things. I, I got myself off talking about Melvin. But the point is, we shouldn't be looking for the escape. We're looking to take ownership. We're looking to take responsibility. Because the point is this, God holds husbands responsible. You are held accountable. And there are many ways we see this in Scripture. And yes, it starts in the garden, with even, even with God's good design, with man being made first. None of this is by accident. And, and maybe, hopefully you already know this, and hopefully all this is just nothing more than Captain Obvious talking to you. And if so, I'm happy that that's the case. But for some of you, it may be news to know that everything God did was with a purpose in His design. I don't have answers for all of it. I don't have an explanation for, for every single thing He did in creation. But in the way that He made man first, and the way that Adam is the one who is given the authority. Adam names all of the animals. Eve is made after Adam. Eve is made out of Adam. Eve is made for Adam. And then Adam names Eve. So Adam has authority over Eve, but Adam has responsibility for Eve. Adam has responsibility for the garden. And Eve is his helper. She is to be there a part of the mission so that they can go out, so that they can go forth, so they can conquer, so they can subdue together. And as they do that, they are going to experience the joy, the blessing, the goodness of God. Uh, They're making His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if things go wrong, as they do quickly in the garden, God doesn't come looking for Eve. God doesn't come saying, I want to have a big team meeting with everybody. He comes saying, Adam, where are you? Adam. Adam is the name that's spoken. And obviously we've got plenty of scripture in the New Testament that continues to show that nothing's changed. A husband is still the head of his wife and Melvin freaks out on that because he wants to go to war over this one verse. I've got many verses, my bro, 
They're not mine. I didn't shoehorn them in. They've just been there for quite some time now. So we've got a lot of scripture that continues to show and reveal that a husband has responsibility. So a lot of times people are afraid of the verse, a husband is the head of his wife because they hate authority. And, and they're terrified that, you know, authority is going to be authoritarian, which we'll talk about the other legs of leadership at other times and other places. But when it comes to being the head, the head also has responsibility. So yeah, the head is, quote, in charge. Yes, the head has the power. The head does control the hand. But the head is responsible for the hand. My head doesn't throw my hand into the fire. My head doesn't hurt my hand. My head serves and my head is responsible for good outcomes for my entire body. And this is what we see God's good design for husbands is. So if you didn't know it, bro, yeah, you have responsibility for your family. You're the captain of the ship. You're the one who's going to be held accountable and responsible for your family culture. But doesn't my wife have a role to play? Of course your wife has a role to play. Of course she has a role to play. But ultimate responsibility sits with you. It's not 50-50. It is not 50-50. What percentage is it? I don't know. I just stick with 100. I just say I am ultimately and completely responsible. It is, it is my fault. I, I don't see the purpose in breaking it down beyond that. I only see the good that can come from me taking ultimate responsibility and then me taking, uh, taking ownership to find a path to move us forward. So whether that's in our marriage or whether that's in our family culture. And that's exactly what I had to do in my own family leadership journey. I tried arguing with my wife. I tried reasoning with my wife. I tried Bible studying my wife. I tried just telling my wife what was supposed to be and how it was supposed to go. I tried everything I could do to get her to change, to get her to take ownership, to get her to take responsibility. And all of this was in a time when things were fine. We were never in crisis, as most folks would, de would define it. But I just knew that things could be better. I wanted us to level up. But I didn't want to do all the work. I didn't want to take ownership and responsibility for it. But until I did, and until I had that revelation, things didn't change. And once I did have that revelation, and once I did have that breakthrough, by the grace of God, surprise, surprise, as I transformed as a man, my wife responded well and transformed as well, and our marriage culture thrived because of it. So we went from, yeah, things are good, things are fine, there really is no crisis, to being ecstatically married. So that is my heart, and that is ultimately, I think, God's heart and His design. Whether or not we like it, whether or not we don't receive it or appreciate it or accept it, um, we'll take time, I'm sure, at other times to get into the Word and to refresh our hearts and minds, renew our minds with the Word. So uh, we're going to fast forward a little bit back to the book here. When I returned home from deployment, I took over Training Detachment 1 which managed all of the training for, West, for the West Coast SEAL platoons and task units in preparation for combat deployments. I set up scenarios where blue-on-blue -blue shootings were almost guaranteed to happen. When they did, we, the training cadre, explained how to avoid them. But more important, the commanders in training could learn what I had learned about leadership. While some commanders took full responsibility for blue-on-blue, -blue, others blamed their subordinates for simulated fratricide incidents in training. These weaker commanders 
would get a solid explanation about the burden of command and the deep meaning of responsibility. The leader is truly and ultimately responsible for everything. That is extreme ownership, the fundamental core of what constitutes an effective SEAL, an effective leader in the SEAL teams or in any leadership endeavor. And now they've got a section, the principle. Every chapter is laid out as they've got their military story, then they've got, you know, like two pages just really defining the principle, and then they have a business story application. No family leadership stories in there, unfortunately. So the principle, on any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. So as you're listening to this, you're thinking the husband, the father, the patriarch, the leader must own everything in, it says, in his or her world. In his world, there is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. This fundamental core concept enables SEAL leaders to lead high-performing teams in extraordinary circumstances and win. But extreme ownership isn't a principle whose application is limited to the battlefield. This concept is the number one characteristic of any high-performance winning team in any military unit, organization, sports team, or business team in any industry, and we're going to add, or family. When subordinates aren't doing what they should, my wife, my kids, my dog, when subordinates aren't doing what they should, Leaders that exercise extreme ownership cannot blame the subordinates. They must first look in the mirror at themselves. Where have we heard that before? Something about a log in my eye. And then I can see clearly. The leader bears full responsibility for explaining the strategic mission, developing the tactics, and securing the training and resources to enable the team to properly and successfully execute. So good. So it's easy to say they didn't do right. But again, we've got to break down our responsibility, our ownership into specific areas. Not to, you, don't, you don't have to just sit back and say, I'm responsible for everything and then get mad when things fall apart because you, quote, told somebody something. But we have to take responsibility for explaining the why, the reason behind something. Well, they just don't care. Well, then that tells me that I've got to get better and I've got to grow and helping them to understand, and helping them to care, and helping them to believe in the why. Because if I really am leading us in the right direction, in a positive direction, in a godly direction, and they're fighting against it, do they hate the family? Does my wife hate me? Is she deliberately trying to sabotage everything I'm doing? Not likely. So let me grow. How can I grow? I've got to grow in those tactics. Is there something I want our family to do and accomplish? Well, as the provider, I've got to secure the training or the resources to enable us to be successful in that area. Back to the book. If an, in, if an individual on the team is not performing at the level required for the team to succeed, the leader must train and mentor that underperformer. So our wife, she ain't doing right. Well, then let's wash her with the water of the word. Let's do what we can to help her see that we want her to thrive and that what we're doing is for her good to be a blessing to her. It doesn't mean she's going to like it. Just like, you know, our children don't like every decision that we make and everything that we do. But generally speaking, 
uh, well, not generally speaking, always, we define authority this way with the family captain. Authority is the power to do what's best for those that you're leading. That's what authority is. So we've got to help our team, our first officer, which is what you'll hear me refer to our wife from time to time, but our wife to help her to see that we're doing what's best and this is what's best for the mission. A leader must train and mentor that underperformer. But if the underperformer continually fails to meet the standards, then a leader who exercises extreme ownership, <laughs> this is where our uh, our comparison breaks down a little bit, must be loyal to the team and the mission above any individual. If underperformers cannot improve, the leader must make the tough call to terminate them and hire others who can get the job done. It is all on the leader. So absolutely true for everywhere except the family. Like you're not going to fire your kids. You're like, all right, well, we got to terminate you. We're going to go get a new daughter. Uh, clearly you failed us. And the same thing goes for our wife. Like uh, we made vows. We're keeping those vows. And uh, yeah, just because you didn't do the thing the right way. You messed up my sandwich again. Are you serious? Well, <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, to terminate you and I'm going to have to hire another wife who can get the job done. I'm going to order a Russian bride and uh, and I'm going to get the sandwiches that I deserve as a man. Uh, for those of you who are new to me, um, I am joking. So uh, yeah, it, it's going to be all right. Back to the book, as individuals, we often attribute the success of others to luck or circumstances. Oh man, if I had his wife, I could lead too. That's not the book, by the way, that's me. <laughs> they got it easy. Their marriage, look at them. Look how happy they are. That's real. That's joy. <sighs> they don't know what real life is like. They don't know. They don't know how hard it can be with my kids and my job and my boss. That happy marriage that ecstatic marriage they got it they got it easy i just know they do they just, they haven't worked for it they haven't fought for it they haven't studied for it they haven't prayed for it they haven't cried over it they haven't fasted for it they got it easy it just came naturally to them look at them it's easy luck circumstances they they had good parents they got off on the right foot back to the book as individuals we often attribute the success of others to luck or circumstances and make excuses for our own failures and the failures of our team. We blame our own poor performance on bad luck, circumstances beyond our control, or poorly performing subordinates, anyone but ourselves. So it's my father wound. You know, that's that's why I'm the way I am. That's why I can't grow. Oh, my number on the Enneagram is this, or uh, my strengths are that, or my love languages are this, or, you know, this happened early in my marriage. Or this is currently happening in my marriage. All of the reasons and all of these things contribute. Obviously, like no one is denying that there are problems with the world. Jocko was not saying that a bunch of people didn't make a bunch of mistakes. I mean, a, a basic rule with firearms, like not even the military, but you need to I'd clearly identify your target. You need to know your target. You're making a permanent decision. So... This is a very, very important thing. So a guy broke a basic firearm rule that any civilian should know. So obviously there are other people who have actions and they are responsible and accountable for those actions. But these aren't excuses for us. Clearly, Jocko would say he needed to train his men better. Obviously, you can't end someone's life because you thought they were somebody else. You can't do it. But rather than saying it's your fault, as soon as the guy tried to own it, Jocko said no. It's not your fault. 
It's not you. It's not on you. Now, that man, if he's going to apply extreme ownership, of course, he's got to live with that the rest of his life. Knowing he killed a man, a man who was on his side, a man who was trying to liberate his own country. So those things apply. But again, the strong leader, the good leader, the mature leader, the family captain is not looking to make sure everybody else gets their piece of ownership. You're looking to take yours. And as far as you're concerned, it's all of the ownership. So sure, moving forward, are you going to teach lessons and make clear? Absolutely. <clears throat> so we're not going to blame our subordinates. Back to the book. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept. I'll read that again. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept. And taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. Ding, ding, ding. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Extraordinary humility. Man, how about just some humility, period? A lot of times it's our ego that rejects this message. Guys, I have dudes fight me hardcore on this stuff when it comes to marriage and taking responsibility for the marriage. I mean, they want to tell me about their wife. They want to tell me. I mean, they just, they want to air out. They want me to know how flawed she is uh, and how many problems she has, not realizing that their very willingness to do that to their wife indicates deep character flaws within themselves and that they're still unwilling to take up the mantle that has been assigned to them. And ultimately, we all are leading. The question is, are we doing it well? But it takes extraordinary humility to do this and courage as well. Well, if I, if I take ownership and say it's my fault, then everybody's going to say it's my fault. Right? That is the point. The, the, the idea here is not that we're pretending to take ownership. It's that we actually believe that it's our fault. So we're not just saying, hey, hey, I got this one. My bad. It's on me. And expecting everybody to go, oh, it's okay. It's, all, it's fine, Melvin. No, we're saying I literally failed actually failed. The, this is why it's so important to have our identity grounded and rooted in Christ though, guys, because if you're terrified of failure, there's a reason that you're terrified of failure. And I would suspect that you think it's because that you failed, it makes you a failure and it makes you a loser. And sure, what do we call a person who loses? Yeah, a loser. What do we call a person who murders? A murderer. So sure, there's some truth to that, but your identity is not rooted in being a loser or a failure. And if your identity is not secure in Christ and you don't recognize that, then humility is extraordinarily difficult for you. And you're easily offended and wounded at the slightest of insults. And when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're a narcissist. You're a narcissist on social media. You think every post you see is about you and you have to share your outrage and your disagreement and, and, and you know, the words of strangers. The words of a stranger on a podcast, some guy you don't know, is saying things and you're all been out of shape about it and and you can't detach enough from your emotional response to actually be humble and say, hey, is this true or is this false? If it's false, reject it. Uh, but if it's true, embrace it and walk in it. This takes extraordinary humility. But how do we be humble? Well, we got to know that we're loved. We got to know that we're actually secure in Christ and that our identity is safe in Him and that we are secure in the Father's hands because of Jesus' blood. And if that's not real to you, then it's out of, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth is going to speak and, and we're going to react and be defensive. It's not my fault. It's my wife. I can't take ownership of everything. You act like women don't have any responsibility at all. I don't act like that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I'm not talking. I didn't make a podcast for women. 
And I'm not talking to women. When I talk to women, I tell them what women need to hear. But when I talk to men, I tell them what men need to hear. I tell men what men need to hear. So we're not trying to find ways out of our responsibility. We're trying to step into it. Back to the book, uh, Extraordinary Humility and Courage. But doing that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. Extreme ownership requires leaders to look at an organization or family's problems through the objective lens of reality without emotional attachments to agendas or plans. It mandates that a leader set aside ego, accept responsibility for failures, attack weaknesses, and consistently work to build a better and more effective team. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his or her team's successes, but bestows that honor upon his subordinate leaders and team members. When a leader sets such an example and expects this from junior leaders within the team, the, team, the mindset develops into the team's culture at every level. With extreme ownership, junior leaders take charge of their smaller teams and their piece of the mission. Efficiency and effectiveness increase exponentially, and a high-performance winning team is the result. A lot of you already experienced this in a lot of ways. Um, that last sentence probably rings true for you. Uh, with extreme ownership, junior leaders, so we'll call your wife a junior leader in the home, she takes charge of her smaller teams and her piece of the mission. So some of you are thinking, you know, in your extremist terms and your terror of authority, uh, you're thinking, what do I have to sit or sit around and tell my wife to do? I got a smart, powerful woman. Well, we'll talk about that another time. But of course you do. I hope you do. Uh, who wants to be married to a, uh, a stupid, weak woman? Uh, nobody. Not a strong, healthy man anyway. So of course, she's a godly, wise, I mean, she's just an adult for crying out loud. So of course she's going to take care of her piece of the mission. But what we want to do is make sure that we're captaining the ship and actually leading it somewhere meaningful, setting the tone, setting the values, and leading by example in the way we take ownership for failures instead of pinning it on her. When, I've, when you've asked her to do something and she forgets to do it, instead of, I asked you to do that. Well, sure, you asked her to do that. Are you going to snap at her and, and, help, you know, and help her to feel shame? Or are you going to recognize, you know what? I, babe, I obviously didn't, like, you got to ask yourself, is she sabotaging the family? Does she hate me? Does she just want to mess things up? Or is she just super stupid and she was incapable of the thing I asked her to do, of the, the phone call I asked her to make for me? Hey, could you please call this insurance company and handle this thing and figure out what's going on with that? A, she hates me and she wants to sabotage uh, her own, the, her own windfall that she's going to get someday when I die. Um, Two, she's stupid and she's incompetent to do it. Or did I say A and then two? <laughs> A, two, seven. One, two, and then three, the third possibility. I just didn't communicate the importance of it, when it needed to happen, why it needed to happen. I didn't take the time to, for crying out loud, do I have to do that with everything? Hey, bro, welcome to leadership. This is the hard work of leadership. If you want things done a certain way and you have expectations for life and, and you want to lead your family with purpose and, and deliberate action, um, you have to communicate. You have to level up as a leader so that they can share your heart for where you're taking this thing. They're, they're not just along for the ride. This is your wife and children we're talking about. Obviously, the people who matter more to you than anybody else. So for those of us who are in ministry, it's all about the vision of the church, the vision, the values, the mission, the goal, the who knows what else you may have. And you work so hard to help sure the congregation understands that. Or you business owners, you think the same thing like, 
this is what we're doing. Or good, good pastors, good business owners, we, we do this stuff. But for some reason, when we come home, we're like, well, it's Tuesday, uh, taco night. And um, well, you know, Thursday, we're going to have sex. That's going to be fun because we've scheduled that. And I've negotiated that sex time with my wife. And, you know, Saturday's soccer and, uh, and ballet. And then, you know, wherever else we got to carpool the kids around. I don't know when you're listening to this. This is the age of Rona. Maybe we never get to leave our houses ever again. But, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there talking about Rona. I was, imagine, I was imagining our dystopian future. But the idea is we want to actually lead our family somewhere and not just get lost in, well, it's just a day. We want to lead our family into the future. They were, that's where we were going. In the same way we would with a church or the same way we would with a business. And that requires deliberate action, right? So why would we think anything else is required at home? Deliberate action, deliberate conversations, intentional communication. It doesn't need to be in a boardroom, um, but a little bit of order Sure, would would never hurt anything. And again, I'm not making any prescriptions here. I'm only answering the made-up objection that I made a few moments ago of, my wife won't do anything, or I can't get a reaction out of my family. If those are the kind of issues you're running into, those are the kind of questions you got to ask yourself. Well, why not? Are they stupid? All right, no, they're not stupid. Do they hate us? Do they hate the, the family and they don't care about our mission? Well, wait a second. They don't even know we have a mission. Do I know we have a mission? What is it? All right, Captain, here we go. Now we're finding some work you've got to do. So what does extreme ownership look like in a practical uh, example? So here is a, a story I have. Um, my boys, the whole family was jumping on the trampoline. My boys were having a good time. If I remember, I think all three of them were naked, which is not an uncommon occurrence in my household. I have uh, three boys. And they had been having a good time. I think they had the water hose out there and they're just jumping around goofing off. But my littlest one at the time, I think he was only three. He's five now, but I think he was three when this happened. And my big, my, my older sons, they were just being rough, jumping around. And I was watching my little guy just getting knocked around. I said, hey, stop, stop it. Y'all are being way too rough. And um, my wife and I, we went and sat on the trampoline and we were just kind of hanging out goofing off as a family. But as we're just sitting there chilling, my, my two older boys, they would still just bounce around a little bit too rough. And I'm going, Hey, what's the matter with you? Like I, it was, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. Like, what am I missing? Like these two, they're usually a little more responsible or usually a little more aware. The crazy thing was even Natalie didn't seem to notice that Hudson, my youngest was kind of getting ragdolled by these guys. So I kind of snapped, I kind of whined a little, like, hey, knock it off, you guys. But I did not clearly stop the behavior. I just did the, hey, stop it, I'm irritated. But I did not guarantee that the thing stopped. Because I could have physically guaranteed it would stop. I could have and should have made them. I should have stopped all activity, gotten eyeballs from all three of my sons and my wife and said, everybody look at me. Everybody listen to me. Daddy loves you. We're having a good time here on the trampoline. Y'all need to calm down right now. If there's any more wildness with Hudson trying to be out here with us on the trampoline, you will get down and get onto the ground. And there will be a, a further consequence. And, you know, it could be a spanking. It could be whatever. No snacks. No whatever. Take something from them. Uh, that's what I should have done. I should have stopped everything, 
Clearly, people weren't receiving the message. And I've got to ask myself, well, do they hate their brother? All right, no, we're going to rule that out. Are they deaf? Maybe, maybe they're having some sort of hearing malfunction. Are they just wildly rebellious and they hate their father? Uh, are they just kids goofing off? There's lots of possibilities. But no matter what the possibilities are, I've got to solve it. I have to take ownership and fix the problem. And I didn't. So a couple of moments later, my oldest, he's jumping. He launches up into the air and he comes down right beside my youngest. And my oldest, as he lands, he lands on his butt. So he jumps up in the air and then comes down on his butt. And Hudson, my youngest, was just standing there. So imagine the trampoline leaving Hudson's feet as my oldest lands right beside Hudson. And then basically as it comes back up, it just meets Hudson's feet. So it just boom, boom, it just snaps. Hudson didn't get launched into the air. Uh, he just kind of crumpled and started to whine. And, you know, I, I was probably like, you know, probably said something to my oldest, like, son, what are you, you know, probably snapped again. And I w went to pick up Hudson and went to help him stand up. And as I went to stand him up, he kind of picked up his leg, like in a gimpy way. And I was furious and I instantly knew his leg was broken. And I instantly was infuriated with myself. Also angry with my son. But I didn't say anything to him. I picked up Hudson, um, brought him inside, began to pray over his leg, laid hands on him, and immediately uh, began to pray. So angry, though. Um, he ended up getting in a cast. It was in a cast for whatever it is, six to eight weeks. And he was fine. You know, whatever. He's a boy. Stuff happens in life. But um, that was my son. You know, that's my little boy. That was my youngest. My three-year-old broke his leg. And it was my fault. But if that had happened even two years earlier, um, that wouldn't have been my fault. That would have been my oldest son's fault. And I would have ridden him hard over it. And I would have put that burden on him. And uh, and I would have blamed him and shamed him. And there was still an appropriate response that he needed. But he didn't need that severe burden. Thank God it was just my son's leg. Thank God it wasn't his neck. Um, but the stakes the stakes are high you know, obviously for obedience with your children. So that was a lesson that still needed to be learned and I still needed to drive it home. But the point is Hudson had a broken leg because I didn't do what I should have done. And maybe you can think of examples that, you know, are not so severe. Hopefully your kids haven't had broken bones because of your poor leadership. And, uh, and again, we don't pour on shame and condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we want to be honest with ourselves. We don't want to deny what is plain and what is true and what we could do differently. So yeah, is it the guy's fault that shot, he fired his weapon and killed an innocent man? Yeah, that's his fault. But Jocko didn't put that on him and go, hey dude, really? You and me, we're going to have some extra time on the range tomorrow. We're going to teach you what an enemy is and what a friendly is. He didn't pour that onto him. Well, but it's his fault. He's the one who did the thing. Yes, my oldest son is the one who did the thing. He's the one who did it. But it's my responsibility. Man, that's extreme. Well, you could call it that. It's the name of the book. And as we already acknowledge, there can be extremes. And, and Jocko actually wrote another book. It's also excellent. It's called The Dichotomy of Leadership. And in the intro, he says, hey, if there was a problem with the first book, it was in the title itself. Extreme ownership. You know, a lot of people embraced the message from the book and then he would get feedback from people and he would actually go, Ooh, uh, he would hear stories where folks actually were taking things 
uh, past where, where they should go. But if you think he's doing that here in his own story, he would argue with you and say he's not. So again, we're looking to take responsibility, not to pass the buck like Adam did. That's our temptation, men, is to pass it on. Man, it's not me. It's somebody else. I didn't do it. It's this woman, you know. I, I'm not the one. Somebody else tricked her, and then she listened, and then, you know, I was just standing there chilling. And obviously, when we look at the ultimate example, we see Jesus. This is what he did for us. For God so loved the world that he came and cleaned up the mess that we made. So what does it look like to love your wife like Christ loves the church? You know, you're going to continually hear me bash the, the milquetoast Melvin approach of worship the almighty female and in the spirit of the age, and it has unfortunately affected the church as well. But it does mean something to love your wife like Christ loves the church. It doesn't mean you're the family butler. It doesn't mean you're the bootlicker of your wife. But it means we want to live and lead like Jesus. That is with strength. That's with love. So even though somebody else may have made the mess, what does Jesus do? Well, he comes in and he cleans it up. And he is truly innocent. He actually didn't have any part to play in it. He didn't do anything wrong. So he's unlike us in that we actually are responsible and it actually is it actually is ours to clean up. God didn't have to, but he did because of his great love for us. We're going to look at one more story from this book that's going to help drive this point home. Whenever uh, we, we think about leading our family, we could think, well, you know, I'm doing as good as anybody could. The story is going to challenge that idea. So this is, uh, I think, the next chapter. It's called No Bad Teams. No Bad Teams, Only Bad Leaders. And this, is, this chapter was written by Leif, um, the, the co-author of the book. During SEAL training, and really throughout a SEAL's career, every evolution was a competition, a race, a fight, a contest. In BUDS, this point was driven home by the SEAL instructors, who constantly reminded the students, it pays to be a winner. When racing a boat crew during Hell Week, the winning boat when racing as a boat crew during Hell Week, the winning boat crew's prize for victory was to sit out the next race, earning a few brief minutes of respite from the grueling nonstop physical evolutions. They weren't allowed to sleep, but just to sit down and rest were especially precious commodities. While it paid to be a winner, this rule had a corollary. It really sucked to be a loser. Second place in the instructor's vernacular was simply the first loser. But bad performance, falling far behind the rest of the pack and coming in dead last, carried especially grueling penalties. Unwanted attention from the SEAL instructors who dished out additional punishing exercises on top of the already exhausting Hell Week evolutions. Meanwhile, the victorious boat crew celebrated by sitting out the next race, and most important, not getting wet and cold for a few brief minutes. The SEAL instructor cadre kept the students moving with constant boat crew races, giving detailed and intentionally complicated instructions to the boat crew leaders, who in turn briefed their men and executed the instructions as best they could in their exhausted state. The command went out from the SEAL instructor with the megaphone. Boat crew leaders report. The boat crew leaders left their boats and ran to take position, forming a smart line in front of the SEAL instructor, who laid, the who laid out the specifics of the next race. Paddle your boats out through the surf zone. Dump boat. Paddle your boats down to the next beach marker. Then paddle them back up to the beach. Run up and over the berm, around the beach marker. Then head carry 
back to the rope station, then over the berm and finish here, commanded the SEAL instructor. Got it. So when they had to go dump boat, they had to go out past where everything was out past out where all the breakers are out past to where things get smooth, basically turn the boat upside down, get everybody into the water and then right the boat and then get back in the boat. And of course, like these guys, they haven't slept at all. And, uh, and they're given all these detailed instructions. Uh, sounds like a good time. So the boat crew leaders race back. They brief their boat crews. Then the race began in place of the traditional ready, set, go. The seal command to begin was stand by, bust them. And they were off. In every race, they were standout performers. Throughout this particular Hell Week, one boat crew dominated the competition. Boat crew two. They won or nearly won every single race. They pushed themselves hard every time, working in unison and operating as a team. Boat crew two had a strong leader, and each of the individual boat crew members seemed highly motivated and performed well. They compensated for each other's weaknesses, helped each other, and took pride in winning, which had its rewards. After each victory, Boat Crew 2 enjoyed a few precious minutes of rest while the other boat crews toiled through the next race. Boat Crew 2 was still cold and exhausted. Though Boat Crew 2 was still cold and exhausted, I saw smiles on most of their faces. So at this point, Leif is an instructor. Uh, you know, this is after their time in Ramadi, if I'm, if I'm not mixed up here. They were performing exceptionally well. They were winning and the morale was high. Meanwhile, Boat Crew 6 was delivering a standout performance of a different kind. They placed dead last in virtually every race, often lagging far behind the rest of the class. Rather than working together as a team, the men were operating as individuals, furious and frustrated at their teammates. We heard them yelling and cursing at each other from some distance, accusing the others of not doing their part. Each Boat Crew member focused on his own individual pain and discomfort, and the Boat Crew leader was no exception. He certainly recognized they were underperforming, but likely in his mind and that of his boat crew, no amount of effort could change that. And their horrific performance was the result. Boat crew six, you better start putting out, blared a SEAL instructor through his megaphone. Extra attention from the instructor staff had serious consequences. Our SEAL instructors were all over boat crew six, dishing out punishment for their poor performance. As a result, the misery multiplied tenfold for boat, for boat crew six. They were forced to sprint back and forth over the sand berm, down to the water to get wet and sandy, then bear crawl on blistered hands and feet. Next, they had to hold the boat at extended arm carry, with their arms fully extended overhead, supporting the full weight of the IBS until their shoulders were completely smoked. This punishment sapped every ounce of remaining strength from the already weary and demoralized boat crew. The boat crew leader, a young and inexperienced officer, was getting even more attention. As the leader... He bore the responsibility for his boat crew's poor performance, yet he seemed indifferent, as, as though fate had dealt him a poor hand, a team of underperformers who, no matter how hard he tried, simply could not get the job done. We're thinking through the lens of family leadership here, guys. I kept my eye on the leader of Boat Crew 6. If he did not show substantial improvement in leadership ability, he would not graduate from the program. SEAL leaders... SEAL officers were expected to perform like everyone else, but more important, they were also expected to lead. So far, Boat Crew 6's leader was demonstrating performance that was subpar and unacceptable. Our SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer, the most experienced and highly respected non-commissioned officer of the SEAL Instructor Cadre, took a keen interest in Boat Crew 6 and their lackluster leader. You had better take charge and square your boat away, sir, said the Senior Chief to the Boat Crew 6 leader. 
Senior Chief was a Goliath of a man, with piercing eyes that instilled fear to equally into terrorists on the battlefield and students in training. An exceptional and revered leader himself, he had mentored many young junior officers. Now, Senior Chief offered an interesting solution to Boat Crew 6's atrocious performance. Let's swap out the boat crew leaders from the best and the worst crews and see what happens, said Senior Chief. All other controls would be the same. Heavy and awkward boats, manned by the same exhausted crews, cold water, gritty and chafing sand, wearied men competing in challenging races. Only a single individual, the leader, would change. Could it possibly make any difference, I wondered? The plan was quickly relayed to the other SEAL instructors. Boat crew leaders from boat crews two and six report, blared the SEAL instructor through the megaphone. The two boat crew leaders ran over and stood at attention. You two will swap positions and take charge of the other's boat crew. Boat crew six leader, you're now the leader of boat crew two. Boat crew two leader, you're now the leader of boat crew six. Got it, said the SEAL instructor. The boat crew leader from boat crew two was clearly not happy. I'm sure he hated to leave the team he had built and knew well. No doubt he was proud of their dominant performance. The new assignment to change to take charge of a poorly performing boat crew would be difficult and could potentially invite unwanted attention from the SEAL instructors. Still, he dared not try to argue the point with the instructor. With no choice, he accepted the challenging assignment with a look of determination. Boat Crew 6's leader was obviously elated. It was clear he felt that only by luck of the draw and no fault of his own, he had been assigned to the worst boat crew of underperformers. In his mind, no amount of effort on his part, could make Boat Crew 6 better. We'll read that again. Insert Boat Crew 6, just insert Melvin. In his mind, no amount of effort could make Melvin's family better. There we go. Now the SEAL instructor directed him to take over Boat Crew 2. His face revealed his inner conviction that justice was finally being done and his new assignment meant things would now be easy for him. Having received the direction to swap places, each boat crew leader went to his new position in the opposite boat crew in the opposite boat crew and stood by for the next race. As before, boat crew leaders were given instructions and they in turn briefed their teams. Stand by. Bust them, came the command, and they were off. We watched the boat crews sprint over the berm, carrying their boats, then hurry down to the surf zone and into the dark water. They jumped into their boats and paddled furiously. Passing through the crashing waves, they dumped boat, got everyone back on board, then paddled down the beach. The headlights from our instructor's vehicles caught the reflection of the yellow bands painted around the boat's rims. We could no longer see the boat numbers. However, two boats were ahead of the pack, almost neck and neck, with one vying for the lead. Half a mile down the beach, as the instructor's trucks followed, the boat crews paddled back into shore. As the boats came in on the headlights, the numbers were clearly visible. Boat Crew 6 was in the lead and maintained first place all the way across the finish line, just ahead of Boat Crew 2. Boat Crew 2. Boat Crew 6 had won the race. I don't know about you guys, but when I read this story and I saw what they were doing, I predicted that Boat Crew 6 was going to do better. I did not predict that they were going to win their very first race. A miraculous turnaround had taken place. Boat Crew 6 had gone from last place to first. The Boat Crew members had begun to work together as a team and won. Boat Crew 2 still performed well, 
though they narrowly lost the race. They continued to challenge Boat Crew 6 for the lead in the follow-on races, and each of these boat crews outperformed all the rest, with Boat Crew 6 winning most of the races over the better part of the next hour. It was a shocking turn of events. Boat Crew 6, the same team in the same circumstances, only under new leadership, went from the worst boat crew in the class to the best. Gone was their cursing and frustration, and gone too was the constant scrutiny and and individual attention they had received from the SEAL instructor staff. Had I not witnessed this amazing transformation, I might have doubted it. But it was a glaring, undeniable example of one of the most fundamental and important truths at the heart of extreme ownership. There are no bad teams, only bad leaders. How is it possible that switching a single individual, only the leader, had completely turned around the performance of an entire group? The answer? Leadership is the single greatest factor in any team's performance. Whether a team succeeds or fails is all up to the leader. The leader's attitude sets the tone for the entire team. The leader drives performance or doesn't. And this applies not just to the most senior leaders leader of an overall team, but to the junior leaders of teams within the team. Man, I just got a bad team. I just got a bad wife. I just got bad kids. If I had somebody different, everything would be different. That's the problem. It's not me, though. No bad teams, only bad leaders. And this is a, an old lesson um, that... A lot of military generals, Jocko points out in his podcast, a lot of military leaders have used similar phrases to communicate the same idea. No, no bad armies, only bad generals, so on and so forth. So this extreme ownership is taking responsibility. We see it in action in this story where the worst of the worst wins the race. They didn't just slightly improve and do a little bit better. And then you go, okay, wow, leadership makes a difference. A little bit of a difference there. But from last to first. So there's no bad teams. There's only bad leaders. So we're thinking about that in the workplace. There's no bad companies. Only bad CEOs. Only bad business owners. There's no bad sports teams. Only bad coaches. There are no bad marriages. Only bad... Oh, that one's different. We're not going to say that, right? No bad kids. Only bad. What? We cringe and we pull away from those going, no, you can't control other people. Well, that's true. We can't control other people, but we can control everything that we can control. And that's what we're talking about here, guys, is controlling the things that we can control. So maybe Eve could have snuck away in the middle of the night and gone to the tree and eaten the fruit And Adam couldn't have controlled that. Fair enough. But we see that Adam didn't do what Adam could have done. And that's what we're looking at. Am I doing what I can do? So in the same way, could somebody else swap into my boat crew and do a better job? Doesn't mean every single thing can be controlled. Doesn't mean your wife can be controlled. She obviously can't. Doesn't mean your kids can be controlled. They obviously can't. These people aren't robots. But can they be influenced? Well, they already are. You are already 
influencing them. You are already the captain of the ship, whether or not you know it, whether or not you like it, whether or not you accept it. The way that your family culture is has been shaped has been done by you. So whether it's good or bad, whether you're aware of what it is or you're not, it's yours. That's your garden that you have tended or that's your garden that you have neglected. And when the father comes walking through it, he's calling your name. He's asking for you, the husband, the head. He's asking for the father. You're the name that he's calling and looking for. Where are you? So could another man swap into your boat crew and get better results? Could another man swap into my family and lead better? And for me, years ago, I determined the answer was yes. I think he could. And in determining that, I then determined that I was going to become that man. I determined that I would become the greatest man that my wife had ever known, that my kids would ever know. I decided that I would be that man and I would continue to live and lead in such a way so that I could hopefully someday answer that question, could another man come in and do a better job? I I still can't say no yet, but I'm on that path of growth. I'm on that pursuit. And not that I'm worried because we're not paranoid. Obviously, our marriages aren't a SEAL team. So all these comparisons don't perfectly cross over. But we're getting the heart of it, right? We're not going to be a Melvin about it and nitpick, because that'd be a very Melvinish thing to do, wouldn't it? But our heart is to grow. Our heart is to take responsibility. Our heart is to be accountable. And our heart is to own the outcomes. So what would that look like in the context of family leadership? Or sex and marriage. Let's look at sex. We haven't done that yet. I didn't know if we could find a way. My wife has low libido. My wife just doesn't have any sex drive. She's always got a headache. She's just always exhausted. That's just what I always hear. That's what I, that's always what the case is. She just she's never in the mood. Why aren't you in the mood, babe? I don't know. I'm just not. I know you're not, but why aren't you? I don't know. And it turns out no amount of reasoning turns her on. It's really weird. You would think that stone cold logic would just really make her wet and hot and bothered, but it hasn't been successful so far. So whose problem is that? Well, it's her problem. No, it's not. It's yours. It's yours to solve. And is that, that's the point that I'm making. So your wife has a low sex drive. Okay. So raise her sex drive. That is the solution. If she doesn't feel like doing it, you know, why doesn't my wife have sex with me? Well, your wife's not having sex with you because she doesn't want to have sex with you. That's pretty advanced stuff right there, right? Pretty high level. The reason a woman doesn't have sex with a man is because she doesn't want to have sex with that man. She's not sexually attracted to that man. Oh, no, my wife, she's just exhausted. Okay, we'll find a way to make her less exhausted. Own the outcomes. Own the situation. Take ownership instead of just blaming the boat crew. Well, the, she's just not good at this. She doesn't care about it. She doesn't prioritize it. Well, how are you going to help her to? Well, I've lectured her. Okay, well, that didn't work, though. So now what are you going to do? It's still your problem to solve, Adam. And that's the, that's the thing that I want you to understand is it's still your solution to come up with. It's still your opportunity. Your kid has bad grades. They keep getting bad grades. They don't do their homework. So what's up? Well, I've ta- I've talked to them. I've told them. I have, I've taken stuff away. I've done this. I've done that. I've put them in tutoring. All right. Are you giving up? No, I'm not giving up. Well, then it's still yours to solve. So you've got to find a new path forward. It's still, it's still your solution 
to come up with. My wife, she's not very Christ-focused. She never is in the Word. All she does is binge on Netflix in the evenings. I want to do like a devotional with her, or I just want to read the Word with her or pray with her, and she's just not interested. Well, it's yours to solve. I've tried just walking in and turning off the TV. Well, that's probably not the wisest approach, right? That didn't go well. She got mad. It turned into a big fight. And here I am trying to lead my family to Christ. Well, I love your heart there, bro. But there's three legs to leadership. So you're trying to take responsibility. That's good. You use your authority and you went in and turned off that TV. But you forgot a leg, the leg of compassion to help her understand the why, to help whet her appetite to the things of God. And there's a pursuit there's a path, there's a way. And of course, leadership is an art form. There's a lot to it. It's not always easy, but it is simple. We want to influence people for their good. We want to be a blessing to them. So maybe you need to cut Netflix out of your life first. Maybe you need to make sure you are as 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 good of an example as you can be on your own instead of neither of us have been in the Word, so I'm going to make us both get in the Word. Well, maybe you should get into the Word first. Maybe you should be that example. Maybe you should be consistent. Well, I just think it'd be easier for both of us. Well, I agree, bro. That might be true. But that still doesn't change the fact that you can't control her. So be the example. Be in the Word. When she's like, hey, let's watch this show tonight, you miss out an episode. You miss out on the cliffhanger. This is welcome to leadership. These are the basics, man. And your child who has bad grades, maybe you've got to be the tutor. Maybe you've got to be the one who gets involved. And then things still aren't changing. You've tried everything. Well, maybe you've got to find a new path. Maybe you've got to homeschool this particular child. Man, I'm not, we're not getting into all that. All right. Well, it's up to you, Captain. You call the shots. I'm just saying it's your outcome to own. So if your child keeps failing, you don't get to blame the school. You don't get to blame your wife. You don't get to blame your child. This is your responsibility to find the solution. And your wife has a low sex drive. Well, are you the man that your wife has to have sex with? Or are you the kind of man that your wife wants to have sex with? What can you do? Are you physically fit? Are you a man with a plan? Do you embrace your God-given masculinity? Do you know how to lead her? Do you work to lead her into a fun sexual experience instead of begging her, oh, keeper of the sex, could I please have a little drop of it tonight? What can you do in your own self-leadership? Well, my wife's a nag. If uh, if she wouldn't nag, everything would be fine. Well, bro, don't let her be a nag. I can't control her. That's right. You can't control her, but give her nothing to nag. Live and lead in such a way that there's nothing for her to touch. Is she nagging you because there's something you should have done two years ago? You know, my the paper towel holder fell off of our uh, um, cabinet the other day, and it sat there for a week, I'm ashamed to say before I finally got around to to hanging it up and, and getting the thing back in place. Actually, I did that this morning. Finally got it secured back up there. And my wife, she's not a nag, but she asked me a couple of times, baby, are you going to take care of that soon? Yep, I'm going to get it. I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on it. And maybe y'all have seen that, that meme. It's like, if a man says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. There's no reason for a woman to remind him about it every six months. So if there's some truth to that for you, take those opportunities away from her. Don't give her an opportunity to nag. Well, bro, I'm on top of everything. I handle everything. Well, then in that case, if you really are on top of stuff 
and she really is just a soul-sucking nag, well, in that case, you, you ignore her drama and you don't react to it. So those are lessons for another day. But the point is, these are situations that we can influence. It's my wife's fault. She doesn't have sex. It's my kid's fault. They get bad grades. My wife won't get in the Word. She's not serious about the things of God. And she's a nag. There are all areas where we have influence. There are always things that we can do. We can take extreme ownership. And we can think, well, what would what would a better man do in this situation? How would he lead in this situation? Well, the wiser approach, the stronger approach would be X, Y, Z. All right, bro. Well, that's you. You're the man. This is what God has called you to do. You are well able to lead your family with strength and love. You're well able to lead with compassion, with responsibility, and with your authority in place in a way that your wife wants to respond. And that is exactly what this podcast is here for, to help you transform as the family leader, as the captain of the ship, to be the greatest man that your wife and kids have ever known so you can experience the pride and joy that comes from leading your family well, leading yourself well, making God's kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to change the whole world, right? But what better place to start than our own household where we have the most influence to make the biggest difference in ourselves, in our family, and then we can continue to expand from there. But let's make sure that we are establishing a household for God, establishing His perfect kingdom as an outpost for the kingdom of heaven, as an embassy for the kingdom of heaven, because we are, of course, his ambassadors. So if you're interested in getting connected, you can find me on Facebook. That's the best place to connect for me right now. Send me a friend request. If you look like you're a real person, I will accept. And then send me a message. Hit me with questions and things that you want me to answer in the podcast, your specifics, the things that you're facing, so that I can bring you more value and be more helpful to you with some of the leadership challenges that you may be facing in your marriage and your family culture um, and what it looks like for you to captain your ship as well as your sex life so that you can have more of God's good gift of sex and marriage and freedom and intimacy and the bliss that he intended for you to have. And uh, also, you know, you can let me know you've listened to the podcast, hit me with some comments, um, tell me how terrible it is or how bad it sucks and what a heretic I am. You can do that too. Whatever you want to do, man, I'm I'm wide open for it. So until next time, guys, lead your family with strength and love and captain your ship.